Hello, welcome to True Crime Chronicles. I am Lindsay, and this is a Mystery Monday case. So the case we're going to talk about today comes out of Broward County, Florida. That happens to be where I'm from. And while I don't live there now, you know, in the past few years, I did live there most of my life, and I was living there when this case happened. And it was in the Pompano Beach area. I'm not sure if you guys are super familiar with the Fort Lauderdale area, but Pompano Beach is one of the cities inside of the Fort Lauderdale overall city. So Sergeant Christopher Rika, this is the case I want to talk about today. He died on duty August 10th of 2007. It was about one o'clock in the morning in the back of a Pompano Beach Walgreens parking lot. Now this case was on the seven of spades on the Florida's deck of card. I believe it was the first edition. I know they've had at, at least three different ones um, where they rotate out cases that have either been solved or they want to you know, put in some newer ones that maybe have a better chance at being solved. Now this case now is considered a solved case, but I definitely question is that actually the case? Like I said, I, I was living in Broward when this case happened. And there was a lot of questions about why Sergeant Rika was where he was at 1 a.m. That was, it was kind of sketchy, honestly. And just that alone, and some of the other details, and, and we'll get there as we talk more about what happened, caused a lot of speculation. Now, all of this was unfounded, though, according to the police department. The case did remain unsolved for 10 years, and out of nowhere, the police department, sheriff's office, they announced that it's solved, and the person that they said is responsible for the death of Sergeant Rika is also dead, and had been dead for 10 years at the time they decided to close this case, which to me was, that was very sketchy. Um, a lot of speculation came from that of a cover-up. And that still kind of surrounds this case a bit. Now, why would they cover it up? I don't know. I, I generally think that police departments and the people who work for them are generally good people. I, I don't think the majority of cops are crooked. I definitely know they exist. They are out there. Um, but, but I don't think as a whole you know, the, the police departments are bad. So I, I don't know why they would cover it up. Some people say it was to sweep under the rug what Sergeant Rika was doing in the back parking lot at one o'clock, you know, at the Walgreens. Some people find it convenient. The decided perpetrator of this crime is dead and unable to speak up for himself. You know, why did it take 10 years? There are a lot of questions in this case. So sit back, relax, get comfortable. This is the case of Sergeant Christopher Rika. Sergeant Marty Katz arrived at 960 South Powerline Road in Pompano Beach, Florida on August 10th, 207. Shortly after 1 a.m., 
about 1.20 probably, partway through his midnight shift. He saw the bullet wounds, and he knew he had arrived too late. He bent down next to his friend and co-worker, whispering words of comfort to him. It's going to be okay. We'll help you. Don't worry. We will get you to the hospital. Just things to try to comfort him. Sergeant Katz remembered that someone had told him the last thing that goes before you die is your hearing. So in that moment, Sergeant Marty Katz, he really hoped that that was true. He knew his friend was in critical condition. He knew he was dying. He was in bad shape. And he prayed he was hearing his words. Sergeant Christopher Rika was ambushed. I mean, there's, there's no other way, really, to say that. He was absolutely ambushed and shot five times around, I'd say around 12 a.m. to 1 a.m. The, the timing is, we're not really sure, and we'll get into why we're not exactly sure. But the shooting happened sometime between midnight and 1 a.m. He was then transferred to North Broward Medical Center in Deerfield Beach, where he passed away from his injuries. So Sergeant Rika was 51 years old at the time. Now, Christopher Rika was born April 28, 1956, to George and Mary Rika in Fairborn, Ohio. He was a scoutmaster for the Boy Scouts of America a devout member of St. Rita's Catholic Church in West Palm Beach and St. Teresa de Lu in Wellington. He was a huge Miami Dolphins fan, as most Floridians are. Well, South Floridians, anyway. That loved to run, go biking, and reading. Chris's life centered around his family. He never missed his kids' events. He was married to Kim Rika for 22 years, who described her husband as the protector of my heart, who was my partner and my best friend. Together they had four children, Ashley, Sean, Autumn, and Spencer. Ashley was in her senior year at the University of Florida when her father died. Now that May, Ashley graduated with a degree in health sciences before going on to receive her bachelor's degree in an accelerated nursing program. I actually did the same thing. I had gotten an associate degree and then I did the advanced bachelor's degree uh, for my nursing program through BCC down in Broward. I'm not sure how long hers took. I think mine took about two years. She worked as an emergency room nurse, which same as me, I also worked in the emergency room, while acquiring her master's degree. Ashley then continued her work in the emergency room as a board-certified nurse practitioner. Ashley's married. She has two beautiful daughters. Sean was in the Marines and stationed in Pensacola when his father was killed. When his contract with the U.S. government was up, Sean opted to not re-enlist. Instead, he followed in his father's footsteps, graduating from Broward Police Academy in 2012 and immediately began patrolling the same streets of Pompano Beach in Broward County that his father did. He is a senior deputy of his shift. He has a seven-year-old son who's named after his grandfather that he never got to meet. And that's always sad. 
you know, either way. Autumn is also a deputy, but for Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, which is right on top of Broward County. She also has a seven-year-old son named after the grandfather who died, you know, long before his birth. Now, Spencer was the youngest, and he was just 13 when his father passed. He graduated from high school and then the University of Florida with a degree in computer science. He received his confirmation, which, I'm not, you know, in Catholicism, your confirmation is a big deal. Um, my grandfather was Irish and very Catholic and raised my father that way. And he raised us that way. So we definitely had to go through the confirmation. So I do know in Catholicism, to receive your confirmation is a pretty big deal. I want to say it's maybe equivalent to um, like a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah in Judaism, maybe like roughly compared. And he became an Eagle Scout. He started his first job as a software engineer, all without his father by his side. Now, I lost my mother very young. I mean, I was a little older than him. I was 19 years old. And the effect of losing a parent, especially when you're young, it, it can absolutely just detour all your plans that, that you have. It, it changes your entire life. So at 13, and for his dad to be lost so violently, I, I can't imagine how hard that is to, to cope with or to process or understand. And the fact that he, you know, did so well after that is a huge testament to his mother. And I would guess probably his other siblings also. I know without my sisters, I would have never made it through. Now, before Chris became an officer and eventually a sergeant for BSO, he did serve his country honorably in the U.S. Marine Corps. During his service in the military, Chris served security detail at Camp David, guarding the president of the United States. So that's a pretty big deal. You know, he he had a, a very successful military career, very honorable, you know, guarded the president. So that's impressive. In December of 1989, Chris Rika became a deputy with Pompano Beach Police Department. In 1999 is when he joined Broward County Sheriff's Office and became a detective. In June of 2004, Chris was promoted from detective to sergeant in the BSO, Pompano Beach District. So Broward County Sheriff's Office, which you will probably hear me refer to as BSO, you know, several times in this. And so he worked for Broward Sheriff's Office, but he worked in their Pompano Beach District. And he stayed there up until his last shift on August 10th, 2007. Now on that night, so speaking of that shift, no one is entirely certain what took place. Sergeant Christopher Rika worked third shift for Broward Sheriff's Office, again in the Pompano District. And that particular shift, for all intents and purposes, began like every other shift. Marty Katz was the only other sergeant on the third shift in Pompano Beach. Each night they met around 1.30 just to see how the other's night was going. This night, however, August 10th, that meeting never took place. 
Sergeant Rika pulled in 960 South Powerline Road in Pompano Beach around 1 a.m. Now, again, it it could be between 12 and 1. I have seen multiple timestamps. But all of those, as far as when he went into the parking lot and when the shooting happened, were between midnight and 1 a.m. So just, you know, kind of keep that in mind. And he pulled into the Walgreens parking lot. So no one's really for sure why he was in this parking lot to begin with. Like, why he pulled in there. There was no call to respond at that address. So for him to be in the very back of the Walgreens parking lot, we're not really sure. With a white sedan-style vehicle where there were no cameras. Now, the whole thing around the white vehicle is odd also. There were no cameras in the back parking lot, but a security camera caught the white sedan leaving the area. Now, I was never able to pinpoint when they said the area if that meant leaving the Walgreens parking lot, like in the front where the cameras were, or if it was just, in the general area, like maybe next door, one of the businesses, or on that street. I I really don't know. Sergeant Rika was known to be vigilant about checking license tags for stolen cars. So this is the accepted assumption of what he was doing that early morning in the back of Walgreens parking lot. They have a lot of thoughts and questions about this, but We'll get to that more at the end. So working off of this assumption, Sergeant Rika goes to the very back of the parking lot to, I guess, check the license plate of this one white car in the very back. Now, Sergeant Rika drives over to the white car, possibly a Crown Vic or a Mercury Marquis, and check the license plate, which is said to have come back as stolen. Now, that didn't mean the car came back stolen. It just meant that the actual license plate on the car was stolen. So, the assumption is that Rika steps out of the squad car to approach the white sedan. The tag is stolen. One o'clock, or between midnight and one o'clock in the morning, in the back of a parking lot with no cameras, Probably not a lot of good stuff is going on, right? So as soon as he steps out of the car to approach the white sedan, the shots just kind of ring out quickly and loudly. So one bullet hit Rika in the head and four more hit his body in various other places. He immediately falls to the ground. Now 10 rounds were fired at Sergeant Rika. And it did strike him in multiple places that were not protected by his vest in the head being one of those places. Now, the 10 rounds, I'm assuming they kind of figured that that from the casings that were there. Because there were no cameras, so I don't know how they knew for certain that it was 10 rounds. But I would guess they found the five, you know, bullets that hit Sergeant Rika. And then they found casings, you know, in, in the parking lot. 
or, you know, a Walgreens employee did hear the shots. They came out and they found Sergeant Rika on the ground and they called 911 for help. So maybe they counted 10 shots and that, you know, backed that up also. Marty Katz was one of many officers who raced to respond to the officer down call. He had been to other scenes where an officer was down, you know, where the officer had been killed in the line of duty. But that night hit a little bit different because this was his friend. This was who he worked with. They, you know, met every night. They talked. They had been on the force together for a while. Sergeant Marty Katz never worked another shift. He only wore his uniform one more time, and that was to Sergeant Rika's funeral. Marty and his wife, Marla, they now live in New Hampshire. Now, for Sergeant Katz, that's traumatic to see it has to be, right? Even if it wasn't a close friend to see another officer like that, you know, go down, especially when you know you take that same you know, risk every day that could happen to anyone. So that had to be, you know, very scary for him. Very, you know, uh, let's see, very kind of like eye-opening, like had to face his mortality a little bit. And he had already been thinking about retiring at that point. So that happening He said the first thing he did when he was able to was call his wife and say, this is it, I'm done. You know, I'm retiring. And obviously his wife, there was no arguments there. So now the hunt for a cop killer begins. And with very little to go on, it didn't take long for this case to go a little bit cold. Although the police say it wasn't exactly ever cold. As tips did come in and they were followed every single one, according to BSO, but they had no suspects, which that will come up a little bit later on. And yeah. So at one point, the police said they had reason to believe that the murder was committed by a gang of drugstore robbers whose leader was arrested December 2007. Now, this theory does become important a little bit later on in this case. The case was featured on America's Most Wanted multiple times. There was a $278,000 reward for the information, any information that led to the capture and, you know, prosecution and conviction of the person who did this. Thousands of tips came in. I mean, thousands of tips came in. Dozens of traffic stops of white sedans were being done. I mean, they didn't need a reason to pull you over. If you had a white four-door car that even semi-matched the description in the bolo, you were getting pulled over. No doubt about it. Did not have to be justified. They were going to pull you over. Tens of thousands of man hours were put in and hundreds of deputies and local law enforcement officers, they helped in any way possible. Like this, you know, was one of their officers. You know, they have a very, you know, close bond in the police force. I'm sure I don't have to tell you guys that. You guys know how police forces work. (laughs) Local businesses did offer free breakfast, lunch, and dinners for the personnel that were assigned to the command post who spent 
countless hours without leaving their post. You know, away from their family, you know, their other cases. Like, everybody was all in on this. It was, everybody was trying to find out what happened. Maria Polo Renner is a sergeant assigned to the executive office to the undersheriff at the Broward Sheriff's Office. She's a 30-year veteran at BSO, and she was promoted to sergeant in 2007 and assigned to the command post that fielded the tips and phone calls immediately after Sergeant Rika was shot. When the command center moved from Pompano Beach to the public safety building in Fort Lauderdale, Polo Renner was tasked with running that command post. During her five years at the command post, more than 3,000 tips were received. But even with all of these tips, years passed with no new developments. I mean, there was none. They had nothing to go on. And then even more years still after that. The Rika family had to continue to live their lives, reach milestones, you know, graduating college, getting married, having children, Or in Kim's case, having grandchildren without their dad and, you know, without her husband. Those are tough things to do. There was a garden dedicated to his father at Pompano Beach District Office. You know, they made this garden honoring Sergeant Rika and his service and his sacrifice. A memorial ride is done every year in Sergeant Rika's honor. The riders start at 960 South Powerline Road. They meet up in the very parking lot where Rika lost his life. They travel through Boynton Beach. They'll travel through that, and it ends at the cemetery where he's buried. So the memorial ride was sponsored by the 9463 Foundation for Florida's Fallen Officers, which that's really nice. And after the sunset service at the ceremony, or at the cemetery, dinner was served in Boynton Beach. So the city of Pompano officially renamed a stretch of roadway on Southwest 3rd Street between Cypress Road and Dixie Highway uh, for Sergeant Chris Rica. And a memorial fund has been established in his honor through BSO. Now, Sergeant Rica was a scoutmaster for Boy Scout Troop 208 in Wellington, Florida, when he passed. The boys in that troop have carried on Chris Rika's legacy by continuing to work towards the highest possible rank in the Boy Scouts. Since his death, 23 boys in Troop 208 have gone on to become Eagle Scouts with an average of 20 registered Scouts per year, which I don't really know much about Boy Scouts or Eagle Scouts or any type of scouting. But apparently that's a super impressive thing. That's 4.5 times the national average. So they really tried hard to, you know, honor him and and keep his legacy alive in that, that troop. And that's pretty awesome. But despite, you know, all these things, 10 years passed with the death of Christopher Rika remaining unsolved. The white sedan was never found, the gun was never found, and no suspects were identified. Now, enter Sean Labitte, a 25-year-old Islander 
who was living in Miami-Dade in August of 2007. So this is where this case takes just a really bizarre and considerably side-eyed turn. So, Sean Levy. Okay. Sean was a 25-year-old, very small-time marijuana dealer in his area. To know about Sean Labitte, you'd have to head four hours north towards Orlando and hang a right to Polk Correctional Institute. This is a remote prison that houses convicted drug dealer Jaleel Torres. Labitte and Torres share the same black hair, the same covering of black jailhouse tattoos. They have the same nose and eyes as many family members do share. Torres is a skinny man who shared a resemblance to his uncle in several different areas. They were very close. Torres says he is the closest person to his uncle, Sean. And if you want to know about him, he's the person to tell you. Torres describes his uncle, Sean, as really just a regular guy. But he had come to be just consumed by his hatred for police. This kind of started after an arrest that led to a very short bid for Labitte. But that short jail stay had a profound effect on Sean, according to his nephew. Now, this is a quote from Jaleel. He was foaming at the mouth shit in jail, his nephew said. I don't know if he was claustrophobic or what the hell it was, but when he came out of there... Labit said he will never go back to jail again, not ever. Now, I don't know many people that when they walk out of jail are like, what a vacation. I can't wait to go the fuck back. Although as many times as people reoffend, you would think that's how they feel. But yeah, most people when they walk out, they I never want to go back there. They hate it, right? And they should. Jail sucks. But according to his nephew... Labitte always kept at least one AK-47 in his car and at least one pistol on his person, usually in his belt. Now, I'm not laughing because I think keeping an AK-47 in your car is funny. It just makes me uncomfortable. Sometimes I laugh. But yeah, I, I don't know many people that just randomly keep AKs in the car on a just-in-case basis. Although down in Miami... I'm sure it happens a lot more than you think. So, but I love Miami. Nothing against them. So, Labitte would let you know if you got in his car, he would warn you first thing. You know, if you get in, enter at your own risk because he would tell you, if I get stopped, I'm going to kill the cop. Torres says his uncle would tell him, I ain't into killing people. I'm just a marijuana dealer. And Labitte felt like he wasn't doing anything wrong by selling marijuana. And by today's standards, he's not, I guess. I mean, I guess technically you're supposed to get it from a dispensary. But, you know, marijuana is not a big deal anymore. Most of it, if it's not legal in your state, it's ticketable. But that wasn't always the case. So back, you know, in the early 2000s, you you would go to jail. And... He just didn't look at it that way. He wanted to support himself and help his family. 
but that fear of jail really stuck with him. Now, it didn't stick with him enough to stop doing illegal things, right? Even though he didn't feel like what he was doing was illegal, it was still against the law in Florida. So, why are we talking about Sean LeBee? Well, there's actually, that's a good question. So, again, for 10 years, this case went completely unsolved. No suspects named, nothing released to the public, nothing to help, you know, get the public involved in this case. Just a very blurry surveillance photo of a white car. So, imagine the surprise of everyone, including Sergeant Rika's family, when BSL makes an announcement out of nowhere that they have found the person responsible for killing Sergeant Rika and they've closed his case. Well, that's great, right? Awesome. Well, maybe. So, Labitte adopted a new name and identity in Miami-Dade, and most people knew him as the alias Kevin, I'm terrible with names. It's W-E-H-N-E-R, so Wainer, maybe? An identity that he assumed in 2003 through false identification. So this seemed to be a genetic situation, honestly. Sean Labitte had a half-brother, and I don't know who the common parent was, if it was the mother or the father, not sure. But his name was Ishmael Labitte. So Ishmael, in 1972, attempted to rob a country club in St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. During the robbery, robbery, Ishmael took part in the shooting deaths of eight people. I don't know if he had a partner, but it, it sounded like maybe he had. You know, he I mean, he could have, but definitely possible he kind of lone wolfed that particular criminal act. But Ismael was arrested and convicted, but jail was also not for this Labitte family member either. So in 1984, he escaped from custody by hijacking a plane that was taking him to a court hearing and forced it to land in Havana. Now, you might be thinking, little Havana, right? In South Florida, but no. No, no, not that Havana. He literally jumped ship to Cuba. And FBI spokeswoman Judy, again, not good with last names, so I'll spell it for you instead of butchering it. O-R-I-H-E-U-L-A. Says she has no idea if he's still in Cuba, but stated if he was, we don't stand a chance of getting him here to face justice. And I imagine that is probably pretty accurate. Now, I don't know much about Ishmael's case. I couldn't find a lot on it. So I don't know what court hearing he was going to, why or where and what happened between the attempted robbery in 1972 and him hijacking the plane in 1984. So just a little little side note on that. But back to Sean. So 11 a.m. September 13th, 2007. Sean was driving his girlfriend, Renee D'Angelo's car. Now, I do want to point out, this car, not a white sedan. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. 
And a Miami-Dade officer attempted to initiate a speeding traffic stop with Labitte's car. So you can see where this is going. So true to his word, Labitte exited his car and opened fire with an assault rifle, hitting four officers. Two of the officers were treated and released. They weren't really injured. Just very minor injuries. A 31-year-old officer, Jody Wright, was shot in the leg, and that required an initial surgery to try and save the leg, but ultimately it required many, many more to do so. She had been an officer only one and a half years, and she didn't work anymore after that either. Um, she was permanently disabled. The fourth officer, Jose Somajano, a four-year veteran of the police department. He was 37 years old. Officer Jose died at the scene. After suffering initial gunshots that took him down, Labitte walked over and just shot several more times point blank into Officer Jose. Labitte then left the scene, left the officers hurt, dying, just didn't care. Police said he did that because there was a warrant out for him for aggravated assault from a September 2nd incident. So again, he was not going back to jail. He had the warrant. He knew they were going to take him. He said, fuck no, not today. I'm not doing it. So somehow or another, he manages to get out of there in the vehicle. Like I have no idea how he managed that, except that just the police were down. You know, one was dead, one was severely injured. The other two, I guess, just didn't think it was worth chasing him. And I don't blame them. So Labitte takes off in girlfriend Renee's car. So a big manhunt is going on for him at this point, right? Clearly. At first, there was confusion, though, over who Labitte actually was as far as his identity because of the Kevin alias that he stole from a Jacksonville man. So the police went to the house that Sean lived in with his girlfriend, Renee. She, of course, gave the police the alias as opposed to his actual name. Now, three other people also helped Sean elude law enforcement for several hours that day, either lying about his name, lying about his location, providing clothing, helping change his appearance, places to hide or vehicles to use to get away. Now, all four of those people were later charged with accessory after the fact. Eventually, late Thursday night into early Friday morning, they did track Labitte to a home in Pembroke Pines. They had gotten a tip that he was hiding in the pool area of the Heron Pond condo complex in Pembroke Pines. They ended up cornering him in the women's bathroom. And members of the Miami-Dade special response team surrounded the apartment complex, the the condo. Two cops quietly entered the men's bathroom while Sergeant Perez and Officer Madruga went into the women's. Now, Sergeant Perez shined a flashlight into the room. I mean, it was dark. It's a pool house, middle of the night. You know, nobody's there. But he shines it into the stall and he sees a person standing inside who was later positively ID'd as Sean Labitte. 
both he and Officer Madruga immediately shouted commands of police, show me your hands, let me see your hands, let me see your hands. Mr. Labitte responded with words to the effect, I'm going to kill you too. Obviously referencing Officer Jose that he had killed earlier, you know, on Thursday morning. He also, along with the I'm going to kill you too, had some other kind of indiscernible exclamations as he reached for a handgun in the front waistband of his pants and tried to kick the bathroom door shut. Now he had locked himself in and the two officers had gave him warnings, told him to put his hands up, come out. He did not. So they fired into the stall, the door that he had kicked shut, about 19 to 20 times, killing Sean Labitte. These officers were later cleared and their shooting deemed justified. But was it justified? I mean, a grand jury said so. I mean, I suppose it is. He hadn't shot at them, but he had killed a police officer earlier. He had a gun, according to them, and he was saying he was going to kill them. I have no doubt it probably did happen that way. To me, I would guess just based off what he said, that he would have already been shooting at that point. But, I mean, maybe not. Who knows? So, at this point now, Sean Labitte's a cop killer. And he's dead. Never named a suspect officially or even like a person of interest in Sergeant Rika's case. So, out of nowhere, the police call a press conference a decade after Sergeant Rika's killing. And and a decade after Sean Labitte's, because this was on September 13th, and Sergeant Rikers was August 10th, both of 2007. So they call this press conference, and they announce that Sean Labitte was not only a suspect, but was Sergeant Rikers' killer. Now, if you're kind of saying, what the fuck, you're not alone, because I was kind of there too at that point. So they did list a few reasons without actually listing reasons, if that makes any sense. They said a lot, but nothing was substance. And this is where it does kind of get sketchy, in my opinion, and not just mine. There were several other people that questioned this also. So a listed reason for how they seemed to tag Sean Labitte as Rika's killer. A license plate was stolen in Oakland Park, Florida, in Broward County. Again, that's part of Fort Lauderdale, you know, collectively. That day in August 10th of 2007. Now, they're not saying that license plate, right? The one that was supposedly called in by Sergeant Rika. It's just a license plate. Which, you know, this is Broward County. There was probably several license plates stolen that day throughout Broward County. So there's no one that places Sean Labitte in Oakland Park that day. But BSO says that Labitte did have ties there, but didn't say what they were or, or you know, why they thought that, the, you know, those were the ties. Now, BSO also said he had ties to Broward County, specifically the Palm Air community in Pompano Beach not too far from the murder scene. But they, I don't know how far is not too far. And Labitte lived in Pembroke Pines. 
So I don't know what the ties to the Palm Air community were. And that was not the complex where he was found in. So I, I don't, I guess because it was close to the Walgreens, but if you know the area, there's a lot of stuff close to that Walgreens. So, I mean, this is South Florida. There's a lot of everything down there. Now, BSO says they spoke to two witnesses who placed Labitte at a nearby business and an apartment complex, neither of which were named um, the night that Rika was killed. But no one places him at the Walgreens or in a white car. So we don't know what the business is or what the apartment complex is where he was supposedly seen. We don't know what time of night. We don't know what time, you know, during the day. None of that was given. So I, I don't have the details on that. BSO also said um, they found a critical piece of evidence at a car wash in Oakland Park. But that's never been released what that evidence is. So they said it was a car wash on Florinata Road between Dixie Highway and the railroad tracks. And that's it. What the piece of evidence is, they've never said. Now, lead detective John Curcio. Curcio? C-U-R-C-I-O. I'm probably going to call him Curcio, but it might be Curcio. Not sure. Maybe John C., Detective C. I don't know. Said Sean Labitte was named in most of the tips they received. Now, they received over 3,200 tips. And most of those named Sean Labitte. But you had never named him as a suspect prior or investigated until a decade later. That, to me, makes no sense. I also don't know how likely that would be. That out, you know, of 3,200 tips, most of those were about one person. I just, I find that hard to believe. Detective Sercio wanted people leaving tips not to call Crime Stoppers, but to call him directly and only speak to him. He set up a new hotline for them to call him directly. And I find this kind of odd and he told people who had called in tips previously to call them in again, but to call them into him. I don't know how normal this is. Maybe. So Detective C told the community the type of tips or info that they were looking for. They want to know who Sean Labitte's associates are. Any firearms linked directly or indirectly. Any vehicles tied to him, including the suspected white sedan. Any criminal activity or involvement prior to and including 2007. So my question was, if they need all of this information, what evidence do they have that this guy did it? I just, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. DNA was retested. They said, as it improved every th few years, so they wanted to put it through the new testing, but no DNA was matched to Sean Labitte. Detective C said a crime scene detective flew to England to learn about a technique used to raise fingerprints off of bullets and casings, but no prints were matched to Sean Labitte. BSO referred to Sean Labitte as... Sean Labitte, cop killer. 
when they mentioned his name. Like that was always right after it. And I I don't know why that was necessary except to maybe kind of condition everyone that when they heard his name, they would automatically think cop killer, right? That's kind of the only reason I could think that they would do this every time. Now, Detective C said in a statement that Sean Labitte had an unclear motive for shooting the cops in September, yet told the community it was because he had shot Rika the month before, and this is why he opened fire. Now, I thought it was because he had a warrant, right? That was why, well, that was, yeah, why he shot Officer Jose, Uh, So, yeah, they continued to say that they had extensive and compelling evidence against Labitte, enough to close the case, but we'll release none of it. Like, we just have to trust them. Like, they they can't release it, but, like, trust us. This This is the guy. Typically, I would say, yes, I generally trust the police, but this case was... I don't know. I I just, I don't feel like we should take the just believe me type of of reasoning. While they couldn't discuss that evidence, they made sure to talk about that Labitte was involved in drug ripoffs while posed as a police officer. But there was no real evidence there either. I mean, there was no cases that involved him being a pretend police officer. And trying to rip people off in drug stops and stuff like that was never on record anywhere so I don't know why they could talk about that but you know not give any evidence as to why he's a killer of Sergeant Rika now the tip that came in the night that they found Labee apparently came from his nephew Jaleel Torres And he said they beat the shit out of him until he disclosed his uncle's location. I don't know about that either. Again, I don't think that, you know, police are generally violent or crooked. I do know that definitely happens. There is several cases of proof of that just recently even that have happened in our country. So it does happen. So I can't say in this instance it did or it didn't. Now, no gun or vehicle has ever been found, like the the murder weapon. And I don't mean has ever been found and not linked back to Sean Labitte. I mean, it's never been found. Now, Sergeant Rika's younger brother, Michael Rika, was super underwhelmed by this declaration by BSO. Michael said he was disappointed that they made a big deal out of what he had maybe heard before. All they did was name a suspect's name. That's all. More information, concrete information, would have been better. And it wasn't just Sergeant Rika's family frustrated and questioning BSO. Detective David Nicholson, a 26-year veteran of the Sheriff's Office, he was the lead detective on the Rika case until his retirement in 2010. So Detective Nicholson said, Broward and Miami-Dade detectives concentrated hard on connecting Labitte to Rika's murder, but there was no link. He said, we had other suspects still a part of the case file that were more viable than Sean Labitte. His concern and his suspicion 
he said is that they, meaning, you know, BSO, are trying to sweep this under the rug and close this case because Sean Labitte is dead. So Sean Labitte can never come back and say, oh, I didn't do this or refute their claims. Detective Nicholson says, and this is a quote, something stinks here. This is the perfect fall guy, right? But why? You know, why would they want to have him be a fall guy? Why would they not really want to find the person who did this? I don't know. One reason, in my opinion, former Sheriff Al Lamberti, when he ran for sheriff, part of his campaign was the solving of Sergeant Rika's murder. Now, he became a sheriff a month after Rika's murder, and he wore a pin with Rika's badge number on his uniform over his heart and a wristband, you know, every day in Sergeant Rika's honor on his wrist. He said the case was very personal and that Sean Labitte was always on their radar. So that seems to be kind of disputed between some of the officers that worked this case. So a couple of things that I just found that maybe confused me a little bit. So a plate was stolen in Oakland Park, right? That was one of the things that they said kind of tied to Sean Labitte because he was known to have ties to Oakland Park. And the plate that Sergeant Rika was said to have called in was stolen. I think it's a bit of a reach, but my thing is they would know the number of the stolen plate and they would know the number of the plate that Rika called in of the car behind the Walgreens. So they would know if they matched. And they didn't say that. They just said a plate, not the plate. So I don't know. I kind of found that odd. They did, you know, end up killing Labitte in the bathroom stall. He did have a gun on him. They searched his house. They have never found a gun that uh, matched the murder weapon. And they never found anything as far as weaponry that tied Labitte to that murder. The video of the white car was in the area. We don't know if it was coming from the Walgreens or if it was just in the area around that time frame. Um, Sean Labitte was never matched to a white car. Now, he was matched to several cars. He used his girlfriends. He used his nephews. He used his buddies. You know, he had used multiple cars. I don't know if he didn't have his own car, if he didn't have a license. I, I don't know what that was about. But it was never a white car. Now, I asked my dad on this. My dad was in law enforcement for 30-something years. And I mean upper level, you know, FBI, forensic specialist, a lot of cases, done a lot of stuff, right? So I asked him, on a traffic stop, right, I was so confused as to why they did not know the make and model of the car. Because if Sergeant Rika called in the license plate, I had made the assumption that he would say the make and model of the vehicle too. But dad said no. He said that they absolutely probably would not do that. Um, typically, he said they would run plates a lot and they would never give the make and model of the car 
they would call in, use the, the code number, right, for whatever they're doing, and say, hey, I need you to check this plate. So dispatch would run the plate and then, you know, let the officer know, hey, this, you know, green explorer tag number, da-da-da-da-da, you know, that's what it's matched to. And so, you know, he would know if he was in a white sedan that it didn't match a green Ford Explorer, right? That kind of thing. And so at that point, you know, Sergeant Rika would then, you know, step to the vehicle, I guess. So I assumed that he would say the make and model to the dispatch. My dad said, no, that's not typically protocol. So I guess that would be why they don't know exactly who the... Or not who, but like what type of of car it was for sure in the parking lot. Now, there's another theory to this. And I didn't really find a whole lot on it. But we kind of went over it a little bit in the beginning. About this gang of drugstore robbers. Um, There's a private investigator working on behalf of a key witness in the murder case of Broward County Officer Sergeant Chris Rica. And he says this case is solved and his killers are currently in jail. Now, this guy is a veteran local PI. And he's not going to, he won't discuss, you know, the details of the case. But he named alleged drugstore robber. He says sources have told him this. 28-year-old Gerald Joshua as the trigger man in the murder. Joshua's name has already come up in media reports as a suspect in Sergeant Rika's killing, which occurred, again, around 1 a.m. Some say it was a little after midnight, so between that time frame, behind the Walgreens store in Pompano. Now, he says, this PI, that he has found new and compelling evidence that he believes proves the robbery gang was involved now he says joshua and three of his cohorts that were charged in january in a string of early morning armed robberies in that area of walgreens stores the leader of the gang according to the deputies was timothy johnson who like joshua was also in the broward county jail at the time that you know this was was announced Two of Johnson's siblings, Alan Johnson and Consuela Jones, they disposed of four guns linked to the drugstore robberies for their sibling, one of which they reportedly believed was the one used to kill Rika. Now, according to previously published media reports, three of the guns were found in a canal, but the fourth gun, which is the murder weapon, according to them, is still missing so sheriff's office is still searching for that particular gun for the fourth one now deputies charged consuela jones with tampering with evidence her lawyer was the one that hired the private investigator to look into the case now this private investigator he learned that the robbers were preparing to hit the Walgreens store in Pompano when Rika came up to the car. When the 51-year-old sergeant and father of four noticed the car move, he turned on his lights and approached the sedan. That's when the killer gunned him down. 
So as far as the car, um, that was one of the very few things in the case made public by BSO was kind of like a still shot of the white, you know, four-door car. Again, possibly a Crown Vic or a Mercury Grand Marquis. That's what the killer was believed to have been in. Now, sources say that this private investigator learned that a local used car lot owner had loaned the white sedan to Joshua and Johnson shortly before the night Rika was killed. Now, that car's never been located, the one that was loaned out to those two. Now, the police and the, you know, sheriff, they say this is ridiculous, right? This is just absolutely crazy. Sean Labitte did it. There's no way these other people, you know, were involved. I think it's definitely viable enough to look into, and I don't know why they wouldn't. I don't know why they went all in on Sean Labitte. It seemed like they had a lot more evidence in the Walgreens robbers than they did with Sean Labitte. But obviously there's stuff, you know, I don't know. I'm not privy to, and they're not releasing it. So, technically, I mean, it is a solved case, I guess. To me, it still just seems a little iffy. You know, I don't know why they wouldn't look into the Walgreens gang. I did read, and again, this is not confirmed. I have no idea, but I did read that one of the main, uh, robbers I guess in the Walgreens group was a confidential informant and that was kind of the deal for him not getting in trouble on the Sergeant Rika case and there was a lot of community pressure to solve this case so they kind of pinned it on someone who was dead and couldn't fight back or come back you know again I don't have any proof of that. That was more just thought processes of some of the other people. One of them was an officer that did, you know, make that statement. But we'll never know. BSO is not going to release it. And officially, this case is closed. So there you have it. That is the case of Sergeant Christopher Rika. What do you think? Case closed or Labitte was a really good fall guy? Let me know. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great day. I will see you next time.